I'm Tisha Bader and in the news, the death of Queen Elizabeth II, Britain's longest reigning monarch who served on the throne for 70 years, her passing on September the 8th, marking the end of an era. Well, we wanted to take a look at the Queen's history and legacy from a Jewish perspective, specifically what was her relationship like with British Jewry, with Israel, and what the future holds with a new ruler. Well, to help us answer that question, we are so grateful to be joined by Jeremy Havarti from London. Jeremy is director of Benebrith UK's Bureau of International Affairs. He is a journalist, historian, and long-standing political activist. Jeremy, thank you so very much for being here with us on JBS. Thank you. So first, please accept our condolences on the loss of the Queen. Yes, thank you very much. It's been a it's been a very difficult period of national mourning, and um, some people have actually sort of suggested that, that they suggested condolences seem rather strange to an individual, but actually I very much welcome them, and I think that uh, she meant so much to, to all people in Britain, including the Jewish community. So thank you for that. Absolutely, and you wrote a lovely piece um, which has been published on the JTA and a number of Jewish. Uh, news publications. I just want to read a little bit of it, if you'll indulge me. Um, the title is What Queen Elizabeth Meant to a British Jew Like Me. And uh, it says, for Anglo Jewry, the queen was a rock and mainstay of her nation, a constant, familiar, and reassuring presence amid the turbulence of both domestic and international crisis. Indeed, she became such a fixture in British life that she created the illusion that she would always carry on as head of state. Of course, no one is immortal, but the queen etched herself so deeply into her country's story that she became emblematic of its very character, the unspoken essence of modern Britain. She was truly the matriarch of the nation. And I, I hear and we feel in your words uh, what, what she meant to you and to the people of Britain. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think um, what I said actually the day afterwards was that in situations like this where there is a crisis or, or trauma that affects the nation, the one person that we would actually want to hear from is in fact the Queen, because she would offer words of consolation, uh, words of experience and wisdom with a sense of moral seriousness, but also a kind of a gentle spirit. And of course, we didn't have that. And I think that in a sense was a measure of our loss. You know, she she felt almost as if she was um, an extended member of the family. Mm. She was always there. Um, and not only that, but there was a recognition that in her public role, she had behaved impeccably with a wonderful sense of, of fidelity to to her, you know, her, her value of duty and of service. And that's really a measure, I think, of, of what's actually lost. And yes, I mean, there, um, there's no exaggeration to really say that her death has left a huge void. And of course, we do have a new monarch to whom people will uh, swear allegiance and they will show loyalty to, but he has massive shoes to fill and you know, the Queen's legacy is an absolutely immense one. And how would you describe her relationship with British Jewry in general? Well, I would say that she had a very positive um, relationship with British Jewry. And I don't just mean in the sense that she recognised quite rightly that, um, that Jews have made great patriotic contributions to the country. And I don't just mean also that she recognised the fundamental values of Judaism were ones that she could uh, identify with as a devout Anglican Christian. 
Um, she was, for example, the patron of a number of, um, of Jewish charities, for example, Norwood. Norwood is a charity that's, that's actually very long standing. It's more than a century old. And it provides help to both children and adults with learning disabilities. So she was a patron from about 1952. She was also um, very strongly associated with the Council of Christians and Jews, which was set up in 1942, um, partly by the then uh, Chief Rabbi Lord Hartz. And the Council of Christians and Jews does a great deal of work in terms of promoting interfaith relations between uh, you know, Christians and Jews. And it promotes that tolerance. And I think in a way, the fact that the Queen was so associated with the CCJ shows her profound interest in interfaith relations and in promoting religious tolerance, because she wasn't just the defender of the faith, i.e. of Anglican Protestantism, but she wanted to promote harmony between all faiths that are represented in, in Britain. Um, she's also She also met many Holocaust survivors. Um, she was for 10 years a patron of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. Um, she... There's a lovely anecdote from 2006, the chief rabbi remembers it, where she was um, she was meeting a group of Holocaust survivors and showing intense interest in, in what it is that they had to say. And normally, you know, a monarch will leave on time, arrive on time and leave on time. But he said on this occasion, she was very, very late because she wanted to spend time listening to each individual story of, of, of these survivors. Um, she, she did show a strong interest, therefore, in the Jewish community. Um, and she did many other things. For example, she laid a wreath at Belston in 2015. Um, she did hold a state banquet for, for Ezra Weissman and gave actually a knighthood to Shimon, uh, to Shimon Peres. So there were a number of things that she did, but I think in general, um, it was a very, very positive attitude towards Jews. And I think that was very much um, reciprocated. And I wanna get back to, you mentioned the chief rabbi, uh, the current chief rabbi Ephraim Mervis, um, published a really lovely video tribute to the queen. Of course, she had a, she had a relationship with the previous chief rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, who is beloved. Um, Ephraim Mervis taking over that role with the passing of uh, Rabbi Sachs. And um, I wanna just play that video now for our viewers. On behalf of the Jewish communities of the Commonwealth, I convey our most profound condolences on the passing of Her Majesty the Queen. The Queen embodied the most noble values of British society. Throughout her extraordinary reign, she conducted herself with grace, dignity and humility, and was a global role model for distinguished leadership and selfless devotion to society. In an ever-changing world, she was a rock of stability and a champion of timeless values. Every week in synagogue, we have prayed for her welfare, well-being and wisdom, and she never let us down. We recall with much appreciation the warm relationship she had with the Jewish community, with a particular commitment to interfaith relations and Holocaust memorial. I recall how, on one occasion, she showed me and my wife items of Jewish interest and value in her private collection in Windsor Castle, including a Torah scroll rescued from Czechoslovakia during the Holocaust. Her affection for the Jewish people ran deep and her respect for our values was palpable. In life, she was rightly admired and loved the world over. In death, may her memory and legacy be for an everlasting blessing. So clearly the connection between the queen and the Jewish community was a strong one. And Rabbi Mervis mentions um, her 
connection to the Holocaust as well. He mentions a Torah scroll that she has in her possession that she showed him that was rescued um, from Czechoslovakia during the Holocaust. And you heard Rabbi Mervis speak uh, recently about the Queen. What was Where was that and what was that um, experience like? Yes, that was in the United Synagogue, which is the very orthodox synagogue in St. John's Wood, which is in um, in northwest London. He is a, um, Chief Rabbi Mervis is an incredibly powerful speaker and orator. When you listen to him, you usually don't forget what he has to say. And he delivered a wonderful eulogy for the Queen. And, and so, well, one of the things that he said was this this notion that um, she inherited many crowns, but the crown that mattered was the crown of a of a good name. And that was the one that she had to develop for herself, because, yes, it's all very well that you inherit titles and it's all very well that you have the symbols of royalty. But one thing you must develop yourself is a good name and a good reputation. And he was absolutely right that um, she in the performance of her duties, she didn't put a foot wrong. She had a, a really you know, an impeccable uh, career. She, she really exemplified fundamental virtues that resonate with Jews as well, of course, of duty um, to the community of service. And she went about her task with great dignity and great decency. And, you know, this was what the chief rabbi said. And his words were very stirring. And they received the kind of response that I think they deserved, because uh, there's no doubt that um, what he had to say was very, very powerful. And, you know, Jewish leaders and, and, and the leaders of Israel, and we're going to get to the Israel relationship um, in just a few minutes. But I wanted to also read something that the president of the World Jewish Congress, Ronald Lauder, said upon the Queen's passing, because he he recollected her history, her family's history, actually, um, during World War II. She said she and her family were beloved symbols of resistance to Nazi tyranny, refusing to leave London during the worst times of the Blitz. Lauder said that the young Princess Elizabeth was an inspiration and source of comfort to Anne Frank in her hiding place in Amsterdam, and then mentioned, as you just did, um, her visit to Bergen-Belsen um, many, many years later, together with Prince Philip, to commemorate the liberation of the camp by British troops. So her connection is, is really on very many levels. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I'm glad that you mentioned um, what Tony Lauder said about Anne Frank, because, yes, during the Second World War, it's definitely true that um, then Princess Elizabeth was a role model. Um, aged, aged just 13 in 1940, she did, delivered a radio broadcast to the children of Britain and the empire, saying that despite their current trials and tribulations, all would be well. And I think that was a message that did resonate. And of course, she then served in the armed forces herself towards the end of the Second World War. And by refusing to leave London, as you say, her and her family, King George VI and uh, you know, the Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, um, they did indeed serve as role models for both the people of London and for the people of, of the country, and indeed for the, the peoples of occupied Europe. And I think that was so incredibly important that she became a, a symbol even then of patriotic resistance to tyranny, um, and of course, later then as queen, um, th th very much the same thing. And she presided over dozens of nations which were, which, you know, were being transformed from, um, you know, sort of colonies to countries that um, were going to be more, you know, freer and hopefully more democratic. And they were the values that she stood by. So let's talk a bit about her relationship with Israel. I know there are those who say, well, she never she never went or made an official visit to Israel. And it was a little complicated because of 
um, policies or relationships with Arab countries as well. So if you could just give us some perspective on, as you mentioned, um, she welcomed a number of Israel's leaders in Britain. What was that relationship like and what were the what were the various um, things that sort of informed how she behaved or was able to act in regards to Israel? Well, I think the important thing here is to remember that she's a constitutional, was a constitutional monarch. I find it very hard to talk of her in the past tense, but a constitutional monarch can't really shape foreign policy and therefore has to be, has to live at the whims of the foreign office and the government of the day. And it is true that she didn't visit Israel. And I think in a way that is one of the, you know, one of the big sadnesses perhaps of her life in terms of her foreign travel, because I'm sure she would have loved to have gone and traced the footsteps of, of Christ. She would have loved to have gone to Bethlehem. She would have loved to have gone to the, the old city of Jerusalem and to have seen so many of the important Christian pilgrimage sites. And she wasn't able to do that. Um, it's not something I think, I don't think the blame lies with her. Um, the Foreign Office for decades had effectively a veto on um, the Queen travelling to the Holy Land, to, to Israel, and simply because they didn't want to, as they saw it, to antagonise Arab countries. Um, the extent to which it would have done, of course, is debatable, but I think that's essentially the reason why she didn't go. And I, I have spoken to somebody who actually had a private audience with the Queen. I, I've never had the honour of that. And he did actually sort of make this point to her a few years before she died. You know, why don't you go and visit Israel? And it was made very clear that this was um, something that she couldn't control. It was very much in the hands of the Foreign Office. Um, and therefore, she had to leave visits to Israel to members of her family and we'll come on to obviously look at Prince Charles and indeed his son um, Prince of Wales Prince William who have made trips to Israel but yes very regrettably she was never able to do so but like I say she did meet Israeli leaders on, on more than one occasion. Yes you mentioned uh, Ephraim Katsir who was president that was in 1976 and she gave an honorary knighthood to Shimon Peres that was in 2008 both of whom you mentioned in your article which, which are truly significant. And of course, as you just said, uh, her family members going to Israel, Prince King Charles now, who was then Prince Charles, visited Israel several times, um, I believe for the funerals of uh, Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Rabin, and then made an official visit uh, just in January, 2020, just not too long ago, representing, uh, you know, the monarchy in an official way, which was highly significant. And there was some discussion, I think, during that visit, I believe with, with Israel's president, Reuven Rivlin, well, we look forward to the queen coming as well. And as you said, you know, at that point, she might've been too frail to travel and that order was probably most likely still in place that they didn't want her to go. But just the sentiment was clear that there was a strong connection. And we haven't even mentioned something that really is so emotional and dramatic. And that is, of course, of the Queen's mother-in-law, Prince Charles' mother, uh, Princess Alice, who is buried in Jerusalem. And Prince Charles, uh, then Prince Charles, now King, um, visited her grave, as did, I believe, uh, William when he visited also, and that's on the Mount of Olives. Can you talk a bit about Alice of Battenberg and, and what she represented? Absolutely. Well, Alice of, Alice of Battenberg um, was um, a, a very highly sort of significant figure. Um, so this was Prince Philip's mother, so uh, the Queen's mother-in-law, and, and a hugely important figure because during the Second World War, she hid a Jewish family 
um, in occupied Greece, um, a family that would otherwise have been exterminated by the Nazis. I mean, she was quite um, a determined um, lady. And in fact, when the Nazis questioned her about this family, she uh, effectively played deaf and said, well, I can't hear you, I'm deaf. Um, but she was able to save the life of that family and was quite rightly honoured um, after the war by being regarded as one of the righteous among the nations. Uh, and of course, at Yad Vashem, you can, you can therefore hear about Prince Alice. And um, it is indeed true that um, both Prince Charles, as he then was, and Prince William did visit her grave in Jerusalem. And I think, I think really for, for King Charles now, it's a badge of honour that he has a family member that actually did the right thing during the Second World War. Because, you know, there's no, there no reason why she had to do it. I mean, she could have lived quite freely without taking that step. But he's really, I think, deeply honoured that he had a family member that was one of the righteous among the Gentiles and, and who did the right thing, um, you know, in occupied Europe. And he's spoken, in fact, of his admiration for the actions that she undertook. And given that, given that King Charles has spoken so much in the past, about the need to learn lessons from the Holocaust. I think it really does matter that he can say in his own family that, um, that righteous action was taken. Absolutely. And we mentioned Rabbi Mervis earlier. Um, he posted on Twitter that this past Friday, um, when he went to extend his personal condolences to King Charles, that um, the palace had arranged it or scheduled that to make sure that he could be back at his home in time for the beginning of Shabbat. It was a Friday. He needed to be back before sundown and that they were very cognizant and aware and respectful of that fact, which certainly bodes well for a feeling of goodwill, of understanding and awareness um, for the Jewish community. Yes, I think so. And I think there are other examples here of how Prince Charles has proven himself to be very good natured in relation to the Jewish community and uh, to understand actually the requirements of faith. So you've obviously mentioned that meeting um, showing sensitivity to the chief rabbi. Also, um, then Prince Charles was the first royal to attend the inauguration of the, of the new chief rabbi. In, this was in 2013. And I only found out recently that he has his own personalised kippah, which has his, his crest on it, which I think, again, is quite important. I actually had the... Um, the honour of listening to as a then Prince Charles in 2011, it was the 250th anniversary of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, and he was the guest of honour. And I remember that he spoke quite movingly for about sort of 20 minutes about the incredible role that Jews had played in the history of Britain. And he talked about their contribution to British life. He talked about their contribution to both moral life, but also to the worlds of business and science, of medicine, literature and art. He reeled off so many names that uh, with which we're familiar. And he also then spoke about um, the Board of Deputies itself as an institution. It's the main lay body, representative lay body for British Jews. So he's somebody that um, is knowledgeable about the Jewish community. He's somebody that wants to have that positive relationship with the Jewish community. And as you say, I, I think this bodes very well for the rest of his reign. So here's the question, now that he is king and he has visited Israel in the past in an official capacity, do you think he will be able to visit Israel as king of Britain? Yes, I, I, I'm hoping he will. And I think it's it's partly because obviously those visits have already been made. I mean, Prince William was the first in 2018. That was symbolically very important. And I think the fact that you know, 
Prince and now King Charles has been is also important. But I think that the changing regional dynamics make it easier. And of course, I'm talking here about the Abraham Accords. I'm talking about the normalization agreements. I'm talking about the tectonic plates politically shifting in the region, which mean that Israel is no longer the pariah with many, many, many of the countries that it previously was with. And, you know, so you're talking here about better relations between Israel and the Gulf. You're talking about renewed normalization with Morocco. The fact that, the, that you have a smaller, decreasing number of countries that regard Israel as the enemy, I think is very important. And it means that there is space for the government of the day and the foreign office of the day to allow for a visit like that to happen. Now, of course, there'll always be great sensitivity in regard to these kind of visits. And, you know, you'll be waiting perhaps a little while for an official visit to Israel. I believe that France is the first country that, um, that the king will visit in an official capacity. But I am very hopeful that because of those changing regional dynamics, we will definitely see a visit by the king in the not too distant future. And that's so interesting because, you know, I've done many interviews about the Abraham Accords. We've reported on them and about all those little effects that all those ripple effects that the signing of such an agreement can have, not just for that part of the world, but beyond. And you just mentioned that that could help a visit like uh, King Charles's to Israel happen, which is just remarkable how things impact each other and open doors that otherwise may have remained closed. Yeah, I think definitely. Um, and I think people have, people really do understand. So certainly the, um, when I go to see embassies, for example, embassies of countries in the Middle East, um, they're constantly talking about all kinds of things that, um, that are happening, all kinds of benefits that have spun off from those normalization agreements. And I think that's incredibly important because it does show that coexistence um, really is possible. And that will that will most definitely extend, I think, to the case of Britain. Uh, and, and of course, there's, there's another aspect of this as well, which is that you know, Britain itself is in a new reality. Um, we, we're talking now about a country that's left the European Union, which is looking for new trade agreements. And while, of course, the, the benefits of a British-Israel relationship have long been understood and indeed have long been in place, I think those, that relationship will also um, definitely improve as there is a desire for greater cooperation with Israel, for example, in terms of science and technology, in terms of medicine, in terms of security and cybersecurity in particular. I, th I think that as that as the British-Israel relationship improves on, on multiple levels, which I think it will, that too creates space for their, you know, for there being a relationship with the royal family. And what would you say are some of the challenges you see, Jeremy, in your work um, for B'nai B'rith in the International Affairs uh, Division for the UK? What are some of the things you face on a daily basis that you think are really important to share with, with the rest of the world? Well, what we do is we advocate for Israel in what is a very, very different, a difficult sort of um, environment. And it's difficult because there is so much misinformation and mythology when it comes to actually understanding what is a very complex set of issues in the Middle East. Um, we have a lot number of challenges. So for example, one of the biggest challenges we have is warning people about the threat that's posed by countries like Iran, um, which is such a destabilizing influence in the Middle East. A lot of countries want to have a, a, a good relationship with Iran. And what we try and point out is, you know, that, that's fine. But obviously you're, you're dealing here with, for example, a country that's exporting terror and violence across the region, which wants to have nuclear weapons. So we try and open people's eyes in a way 
to the difficulties it poses. Um, we also deal, for example, with the issue of incitement from the Palestinian Authority. We deal with the role that UNRWA is playing, which we feel is incredibly negative. Um, and more to the point, there's also a lot of misinformation about the regional, you know, the dynamics in terms of the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, we look at the role that the UN plays, which is often an incredibly negative one because of its structural endemic bias, its one-sidedness in regard to any issues to do with um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So we're trying to deal with all these issues and even countries that are well disposed, um, for example, can sometimes have very negative UN voting records. And so that's something that we have to take them to task on. So. Despite all, everything I've said about the positive nature of what, of what was going on in terms of improving relations with Israel and improving regional dynamics in the Middle East, there are always going to be that set of other challenges that we have to deal with. And it's simply a case of advocating as strongly as possible and giving, always trying to give as, as positive um, a story and as positive a narrative about Israel and the Jewish people as possible. And Jeremy, before I let you go, I know you were commissioned a few years ago to co-write um, a book on the history of the Board of Deputies, uh, Britain's Jewish Board of Deputies. And I'm just wondering, as a historian, how you see the future now with King Charles in the throne? Of course, you, you can't predict exactly what will happen, but what is your general feeling, your general thought about British Jewry the relationship with Israel going forward under this new monarch? Well, first of all, I would, I would answer that by saying that I think that we could say British Jews have had or experienced a golden age in recent decades. Um, and that's because of a number of different factors, um, growing prosperity, the fact that we're living in a liberal democracy, and the fact that we've had a benign monarchy that has looked very favorably on the Jewish community, which is what, what I've been saying in, in recent minutes. Um, and I don't see any reason why that won't carry on. I, th I think that where there are challenges for the for, for Anglo Jewry, it's in terms of demographics, because obviously the community is much smaller than it used to be. There used to be half a million Jews in Britain sort of 50, 60 years ago. And today it's just under 300,000. So there are issues definitely in terms of demography um, because the community has shrunk. But I think the, the population seems to be stabilising now. But in, in terms of the fact that I think we are living in a relatively <clears throat> safe environment. We're free to practice our faith. There is anti-Semitism, yes, undoubtedly, but we also have a government that is sympathetic to our concerns, that the established Jewish bodies work with the government on a regular basis too. I think from that point of view, things are positive. And as well as that, in terms of our relationship with Israel and in terms of the government's relationship with Israel, again, that's positive. You know, most British Jews are Zionists, vast majority. We have a strong relationship with Israel. Obviously, there's space to disagree with individual policies of the Israeli government. And that's, you know, you wouldn't have a Jewish community that, did, that didn't have differences of opinion, but it's strongly Zionist. It wants to it wants to support the people of Israel. And like I say, we because of the changing regional dynamics and because of lots of different factors and obviously the positive relationship with the Jewish community, I think that we're going to see a monarchy too that will continue to have a positive relationship with Anglo Jewry and will, I think, also have a positive relationship with Israel. So I, I'm sort of fairly optimistic. I'm aware of the challenges um, and I don't believe in, in having too rosy a picture because you've obviously always got to be grounded in reality. But I think in general, we have the right to be pretty optimistic looking ahead. 
I certainly um, would echo that. And thank you so much for your perspective um, from a historical point of view and also from a personal point of view on, on the loss of the queen, on the impact she's had on the Jewish community, her relationship and how going forward, what we can look forward to with, uh, with King Charles. Thank you so very much, Jeremy. Jeremy Havarti is director of Benebrith UK Bureau of International Affairs he is also a journalist and a historian, and we thank him so much for joining us here on JBS. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, pleasure. And thank you, as always, to our director, Sloan Copeland, managing director, Dara Golub, transmissions manager, John McDevitt, our technical manager, Michael Paley, producer, Carol Lilienthal, and our executive producer, Mark S. Golub. And thank you for watching in the news. <laughs>